Good morning once again. And uh, checking Facebook right before we get up here as I do, uh, Evelyn Eastridge also has a birthday Tuesday. So everyone look around to the back camera and wave in happy birthdayness to Evelyn for Tuesday. And if you see her, uh, reach out to her, uh, make sure you wish her happy birthday. So once again, uh, it's a good day and I do appreciate you all being here and um, with everything going on in the world and... Uh, and just, there's a lot going on right now, and it's a good day, and I just pray today is a good day for all of us, and uh, yeah, I hope this sermon's convicting to you, as well as helpful in your life, and uh, who's uncomfortable right now? I mean, some people might be uncomfortable anyway, but that's another story. This thing is awesome. It's an amazing thing in that it combines some of the biggest technology of the last 50 years into the palm of my hand. And yet it's also one of the things which some may call the detriment of society. I won't go that far. But yet it can do the very thing that I just did. Which is, I'm here, but I'm not here. I'm here, but not here. Even if I just put everything else down, and even if I just hold it in my hand while I'm talking to you, what does that convey? Maybe there's something more important going on. Actually, the Cardinals score just popped up. Maybe they'll actually win like they've not been doing lately. But that's a whole other story. <clears throat> the thing is, even just holding this in view, holding this to where I can be distracted by it, tells you, maybe unconsciously, that you're not as important as what may be on here. And especially if I'm scrolling and talking at the same time, now that's very blatant. It's hard to actually talk and be present at the same time. Uh, those of you who have been watching Wednesday night uh, here know that I've been trying to balance a couple things of technology and including via Zoom, and uh, sometimes I don't do a very good job. Last, last time I did okay, but oftentimes, you know, it's very obvious when I'm trying to do something else, I hit the wrong button, and all of a sudden, oh, Thomas is gone for a minute, and I come back eventually. Here's the thing about smartphone usage. Let's go into some stats real quick. Out of curiosity, what do you think the answer is to this? The average American checks their smartphone how often? Shout out a couple of possibilities. Every five minutes? What was that? Every two minutes? Every three hours? I think everyone knows that's wrong. <laughs> The average American, as of uh, when the study was, which was two years ago, so it might actually be uh, shorter than this, is every 6.5 minutes, which if you hash that out throughout the day, that's 150 times or more a day. I think that's right, because unfortunately I look back and I go, ugh, <laughs> a little bit. Here's the interesting thing, though, is that smartphone usage and technology usage, actually there's a term which will come up in two slides, technoference which is basically anything having to do with the interference of a piece of technology has actually made its way into the list of the things that cause conflict in relationships, not just marriage, but relationships in general. Uh, the top five relationship conflicts right now, I mean, they're, they're always shifting, but predominantly right now, among people who study this are the usuals, finances, communication, intimacy, children, and technology. Now, what's interesting is that studies have shown it's not necessarily the amount of technology that you consume but it's the times you do it. Meaning, oftentimes with marriages or relationships, when you ought to be focusing on your spouse, and instead you're browsing Facebook or watching YouTube or something, that causes conflict. 
and oftentimes has to do with a couple other of the other conflicts. Moving on a little bit differently, there's a study that had this uh, sentence in it. The study found that when technology devices frequently interrupted, partners, couples had more conflict over technology use, as we just said, lower relationship satisfaction, more depressive symptoms, and lower life satisfaction. There's a study that came out just last year that's saying since 2012, which is in the mark of 50% of Americans having smartphones or cell phones, which included teenagers, that teenage loneliness and depression and anxiety went up almost double what it was before. Let's have a few more stats. Why not? Study on technoference. You ready for this? Related that 70% of those in a committed relationship, not just marriages, 70% reported smartphones had a negative impact on their relationships. And scientists begin to call this, or psychologists begin to tell technoference, technology interference. We have this word. Who's not? Who's never heard this word before? Okay, you know, a little bit. We have this term called fubbing, which is phone snubbing, which is when you're trying to be with someone and yet they're snubbing you, in a sense, by focusing on their smartphone. Now, there's another word which is coming to the vernacular that has to do with relationships specifically, which is puffubbing, which is partner phone snubbing, which is specifically when someone who is your, is your partner, your spouse, your relationship partner, is spending time with their smartphone as opposed to you. Now, I say this, one, because, you know, who learned something new just now? But then I say this because these are words that are being created to describe the effect that's going on. And maybe it's not rampant in your circles. Maybe you don't do this. Good job. Keep it up. But I've heard this quite a bit, actually. I haven't used this word in my marriage, per se, but Amy and I have actually had this conversation when it comes to Maybe we don't need to focus on our tablets or smartphones right now. Maybe we should do something else. And we go back and forth on a yo-yo a little bit, I admit. I'm, not talk I'm just not talking to her. I'm talking to me. That all of a sudden I realized I've been on my phone right before bed the last week, and uh, this isn't the time for this. At least I'm self-aware, but I don't go so far. The whole point of leading with this today is that what is one of the biggest sins of focusing on this when I could be focusing on you. It's that I'm not present with you. I'm here, you're here, but obviously I'm not with you. Presence. Or, rather, the lack thereof. There is virtue in being self-aware, and I found this little meme which I enjoyed. I find my, my lack of presence disturbing which I invite you, even just from this intro, consider your technology use. Consider when uh, you're using it instead of focusing on someone. Okay, little, little tip on this. Putting the phone upside down on the table over lunch does nothing. It doesn't count. It's still there. Neither are you magnanimous whenever you get a call or a text and you announce to your lunch partner something, I'm not going to respond to that. You just did. I've tried to go so far, I'm not trying to say I'm doing it right. Um, I think many of you, hopefully those of you who have had lunch with or spent some time with, know that I try to focus on you. Um, I've tried to go so far as I turn it off before I get there, and Amy has a special, uh, even a vibration pattern. So that way, even if she goes, because she's the only one I'll interrupt what I'm doing for. Uh, so that way I know it's actually her without having to look at it. 
I say that not as a, hey, look at me, but you might want to try that just as a tip. We can do that nowadays if you're inclined. But I do try, and I don't do it well all the time, but I try to be present, although it's harder and harder and harder sometimes with as much as we want to spend and devote attention to our phones. Lack of presence. Love for you to find is when we put anything above the people that we're trying to spend time with. Lack of presence. And so today, not just railing against smartphones, I use mine a lot. I'm a technology guy, as many of you know. <sighs> Unfortunately, sometimes. Not railing against that, but just the whole idea of presence I want to focus on today. And so today, our theme is love is present. And no, yes, your gift, it's a gift to people, but we're not just looking at the fact of giving people a gift. Giving people a gift does not make up for the fact of you not spending time with them. But we want to look at the gift of presence. We want to look at three different ways of presence. Presence above, presence beside, and presence in contact. Now, I did ABC for you, but you know that last one is in contact, and I'll explain that in just a little bit. Above, beside, and contacting, or in contact. Now, the first one here might be slightly obvious. Presence above. And to do this, we need to go all the way back to the garden, as most things do in Scripture. In the garden, wouldn't you give anything sometimes to be there before Adam and Eve messed up? Or if you were there before you messed up, because you were going to eventually? What was it like? I don't know. But the presence of God in his world, and the presence of the world, and everything in it with God, was unparalleled. As Bill talked about this morning, there were no barriers that we and the world had put in front of us to detract us, to distract us, to make ourselves, to remove ourselves from the presence of God. Even just that sentence alone, none of us in here have an idea of what it means to be completely unadulterated, completely 100% in the presence of God at all times. I know that because we're human. If you're breathing, you have this problem. What an amazing thing. But the thing is, the original design for the world shows us something. It shows us that the presence of God was always supposed to be something that was constant, not interrupted, and always there. And we have this thread throughout Scripture. A couple of verses to throw at you. I don't like to do this, but sometimes it's worthwhile. A couple of verses to throw at you. Exodus 34, 14, 33, 14, whenever God created his tabernacle, he said, and he said, and he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. The very presence of God promised rest. The very presence of God promised direction. The very promise of God promised that he was there. His presence spoke for itself. Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. What does that say? As Bill talked about this morning, as I had mentioned, the fact that God doesn't go anywhere. But if we seek him, we'll find him where we are because he is there. His presence is still around. Psalm 139.7, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? The psalmist is acknowledging that the world is God's footstool and there is nowhere we can be without the presence of God should only we look for it and seek it. James 4.8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. There's no qualifier about if or he or if this. It says seek God and he will be sought. Maybe one of the biggest ones is this, Romans 12.1, Therefore, I appeal to you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. But well, how do you present your body? Well, 
Your life is what that implies. Your whole life is a spiritual act of worship. Now, not everything we do in life is worship, but yet our life should have a orientation of worship. For example, if I'm doing finances or budget, I'm not worshiping God with that. I'm doing quite the opposite. I hate that. The detail stuff. Being with my kids, maybe, painting a house, I can worship them. Worship has to be intentional. Therefore, not by default everything we do is worship, but yet our life should have an orientation of life on the altar, meaning everything that we do should in some way or form reflect the glory of God. And this, John 15:4, Abide in me, says Jesus, and I in you. That word abide doesn't just mean to visit, as I talked about before, but it means to live in. To live in Christ, to live in God, and therefore He in us. What do we do with these verses? Well, it teaches us a good principle. And I want to ask it in the negative first, just to make the point. In your life, which moment of the day does not deserve God's glory? Rhetorical question, obviously. I hope your answer was, well, they all do. That's the correct answer. Hard in practice, I think we know that. Let's put it a little bit differently, shall we? I think the promise of Scripture and the original design of the world tells us this, that God desires to make every moment of our day glorious in Him. Somehow, some way. The life orientation of worship, being aware of God's presence in every moment. I've actually started a discipline I've been failing at lately, which is to try to, every moment I'm aware of it, intentionally see God's glory and God's grace and the goodness of God around me. Greg and I actually had a walk where we talked about this not that long ago. It's hard, but yet easy, if that makes sense. It's hard to be aware of it, but it's not hard to say, God, thank you for this, and thank you for that, and wow, you're amazing with this. But it takes intention. It takes purposefulness. It takes an awareness that, yes, every moment of our day can and should, maybe ought, to have God's glory within it. Psalm 16, 8, but Jim read, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. How are you, as Bill talked about this morning, sometimes not worried? How do you deal with anxiety? How do you deal with the uncertainty of life? Maybe it has less to do with simply knowing the promises of God versus actually believing that the Lord God is set before you, is present with you in every moment and will be in every moment that you experience. He's already there. And he's with you. What is it like whenever you face things alone versus with your family, with your spouse, with your father, with your mother? Someone that you trust. Someone who you know will lead you through the day. Someone who you know will help guide you. It changes everything, doesn't it? Maybe that ought to be the, that ought to be the approach that we have with God. Being as present as we can with He who is always present with us in every moment of every day. And this matters because two little pithy sayings for you, which, once again, I try to make them rhyme, which are true, though. You must be like God in order to see like God. This will come into play a little bit later, but I want to introduce them to you so that way I say them. And also, you must grow close to God to show the world God. The presence of God is not just a good thing for you. It is a good thing for you. It's a good thing for us. But in order to see things like God, you need to be like God, and that demands presence. In order to show the world who God is, you must... Grow close to God in order to know Him and be like Him. That's obvious, I think, to many people. Except how hard is that? More challenging than we want to admit. 
The presence of God is something we should always be seeking, always striving towards, always be aware of. Which leads us then to the fact, what happens when we see like God? What happens when we begin to be a little more like God? What happens when we walk a little bit more in the presence of God and being able to be shaped and transformed by His very presence? Well, I think a couple things, a lot of things, but four for our consideration this morning. We begin to see people differently. Instead of being aware that, okay, this is the lunch date and, you know, we got to get through this, um, you know, okay, I'll be nice. Or even seeing people on the streets, people asking us, how was your day even? People asking us for things, people maybe driving a little bit too slow. Instead of seeing these people as interruptions or maybe seeing them as things we have to endure, if we start to see them like God, we begin to see them as opportunities. We begin to see them as blessings. We begin to see the very fact that sitting across from someone else made in the very image of God, maybe even someone who believes in the same God we do, is such a blessing. It's such an amazing gift. And it's, worth, it's worshipful, it's worthwhile to be present in that moment out of devotion and glory to God. We begin to see people differently. Instead of seeing people simply as you're trying to interrupt my day, we begin to see people as opportunities to show God, opportunities to serve them in God's name, opportunities to worship together in communion out of the God maybe we both serve or the God that we need to show them. <clears throat> we begin to see time differently. How many people wake up every day and your first thought is, I do not have the time today to accomplish what I want? I do all the time. Maybe we need to wake up saying, God, no time of mine today is mine. You have gifted it to me, therefore what you want to do, rearrange my schedule, unhurry me, which is actually the next one, we become unhurried. What if we did that with our time and began to see it more as a stewardship that we are responsible for as something we need to cram in to accomplish? And this doesn't work everywhere. And obviously there are certain things which are beholden to us or fixed upon us from bosses and companies and such, but even then, you do have control over a lot of your day. But if we begin to see it as a stewardship about this is not my time I have to accomplish, but yet this is time in which I have been gifted and graced in order to be present with God, in order to be present in His world. Third thing we've been talking about on Wednesday nights, unhurriedness is a great gift. Even just this morning, it helped that I actually left on time, of course, but even this morning, there was someone driving about 10 miles under the speed limit. Who would that bother? I like the people who are going, <laughs> thank you for your honesty, but, you know, put them up there. And I admit, I had to have the whole, there's no need to hurry. Why am I rushed? Even if I was running late, is it worth destroying the rest of my morning with my emotional turmoil of going, if you would just try to speed limit? Is it worth it? No. And finally, the gift of togetherness, of friendship, which leads us to our next point of besideness in just a moment. Here's the deal we can only ever be truly present with each other when we are also present with God. Now, this is a bit extreme, maybe a bit... No, I'm not even going to say it's hyperbolic. I think this is true. We can only ever be truly present with each other when we are also present with God. Why? Because we are made to treat each other like Him. We reflect each other to each other. We are made to be like Him and see each other like He sees us. What is it like 
to unhurry yourself and to have the stewardship of time to say, you know what, it's okay to have this conversation. It's okay to do this. It's okay to treat this person as if they're the most important thing. Why? Because God does with you. Which leads us to beside. You know, there's an interesting stat that 50% of long-distance relationships fail. And there's different definitions of what long-distance is, but they all come down to one thing. Long-distance relationships often fail to a lack of progress in the relationship, meaning the lack of depth, meaning the lack of development, emotional closeness, physical closeness, mental closeness, all the things which you do with someone that you're with and you don't even realize it when you're developing a friendship or a marriage or, or anything like that. This is a big deal. I don't know if anyone's ever felt that way, which is like, maybe you've had that experience of like, you know, I like you and all, but we're just not growing together. There's no progress here. Where are we going? Who knows? If you don't know, then that's a problem. That's true, actually, even when you get married, if you don't know where you're going, but that's beyond the purview of this. Here's the thing, brothers and sisters, and I'm going to speak a little pointedly. Shocker, probably. We do this same phenomenon at church. We have church distance relationships. We have relationships in the church which are no closer or farther than the building. We have relationships which are no more and no less present with each other than at services. Not all of you, but all of us at some point. Church distance relationships, no more and no less present than at services, no farther and no closer than the building. It happens. We can't have that. Church is not meant to be a long-distance relationship, nor is it meant to be a surface-level relationship of Sunday morning only. And I don't think any of you would disagree with that. Except how many of us actually practice that? I'm going to quickly go through all the one-another passages. You ready? Don't write anything down. Just get the big picture. Ready? And this particular author is divided into three sections. Unity, love, and service. You ready? Be at peace with one another. Don't grumble against one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Wait for one another before beginning the Eucharist. Don't bite, devour, and consume one another. Don't challenge or envy one another. Gentle, patiently tolerate one another. Maybe we should repeat that for some of you. <laughs> tolerate one another. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving to one another. Bear with and forgive one another. Seek good for one another and don't repay evil for evil. Don't complain against one another. Confess sins to one another. <sighs> love. Love one another. Through love, serve one another. Tolerate one another in love. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Be devoted to one another in love. Wash one another's feet. Give preference to one another in honor. Don't be haughty. Be of the same mind. Serve one another. Be subject to one another. Regard one another as more important than yourself. Clothe yourselves in humility towards one another. Don't judge one another. Don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Greet one another, one another with a kiss. Husbands and wives, don't deprive one another of physical intimacy. Bear one another's burdens. Speak truth to one another. Don't lie to one another. Comfort one another concerning the resurrection. Encourage and build up one another. Stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Pray Pray for one another. Be hospitable to one another. And this author included this one. Teach and admonish one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now that's a lot. What's the whole point? How many of those can you do if you're not present with one another? And I don't just mean physically. Here's the thing. Let me just be clear about this. There are things that happen 
when you're in person with somebody that I think can't happen any other way. I think that principle is true. I think we need to take that seriously when it comes to church and church life and fellowship. But, do not tell me that it's harder nowadays to check in on one another than it was ten years ago. Do not tell me that it's harder to actually check in and see what's going on and be present with one another in a very multitude of ways than it was ten years ago. Don't tell me it's harder, because it's not. I said it last week, I said it the week before, I'll say it again. Anyone who says any excuse against, well, I'm too busy or it's hard or they haven't done it to me, you're being lazy. I'm a friend, I'm your brother. I say it to me too. It is so easy nowadays to have presence with one another. Varying degrees of presence, varying degrees of quality, sure. I don't know how many of you Brian and I were texting. We had a whole conversation over text when I was working in the audio booth this morning. Now, is that presence? Well, maybe not the best quality. But we check in on each other quite a bit sometimes, some weeks. Roland's Elvis gifts. Are they worth eternal life? No. But sometimes they give me a much-needed laugh, and I feel present with him and him with me. Stop sending those, by the way. No. <laughs> The quick email, the quick text, the quick phone call to say, hey, how are you doing? It's not the best quality of presence, but man, when I take that over, not hearing it ever. It is easier nowadays to have various levels of presence with one another. Don't tell me that you're too busy. Don't tell me it's too hard. Don't tell me that you're waiting for someone else. You can tell me, but I'm going to say what I just said. Stop it. What if just Dream with me for a minute, church, brothers and sisters. What if we began to see people who are alone, yes, even at the church building, or people we knew who were alone in life as an emergency? What if people we don't know became a crisis? And what if people we never talked to were a disaster? Meaning, it's a disaster if we continue to not talk to them. It's a, it's a crisis if we continue to not know them. And it's an emergency if people who are alone remain alone. What if... What if we took the one another's beyond whatever's sufficient and really embrace them? What if... The one another's became a way of life. What if the one another's pervaded us so much that church leadership meetings became less consumed with budget and ministries and became more consumed in prayer about how to be with one another, know each other better, bring each other more towards Christ? What if ministries were measured not by the amount of people who come together to do work for the Lord, but yet what if they were valued as the work of one another coming together. Simply that. Whatever you do on top of that, a bonus. What if congregations stopped measuring how many came on Sunday morning and instead measured how present we were with each other between the closing prayers? Presence, brothers and sisters, I'm convicted is not an option. Presence is a necessity. 
out of God's presence with us, presence with each other is a must. What could the church be if people walked out of here always feeling known, feeling that multiple people actually shared a moment with them? What if they felt the presence of God through each other's presence through the week? Just what if? I know we want to do that. I know no one in here will say, well, that's not a good idea. Sometimes good ideas need repeating. Finally, out of this, contact. And I want to go a bit of a surprising place, maybe. Many of us know from the Sermon on the Mount this verse, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste... How shall saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, Matthew usually does a pretty good job of filling in the details, but in this case, to get the bigger picture of what we know and what Jesus may mean by salt, we actually have to go to Luke. Luke 14, 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Two quick things about this real quick. The word translated taste, that's not the best translation. Actually, the best translation of that is simply saltiness. If salt has lost its saltiness, uh, actually the word for that actually means something that's broken or something that's you know like, like a crisis or an emergency. Um, if salt has become not what it is, how can it be restored? And in both cases here, the word for earth, whoops, I just turned myself off, the word for earth uh, right here, this is actually the same word, earth in Matthew 15, 5, and Luke 14, the word for earth there is not the word for the whole earth, but it's the word for soil. That's important because what on earth, or soil, does Luke mean by either for the soil or for the manure pile? Now, we tend to think this is simply a way of getting rid of salt because you and I interact with salt more for what we use it for. We use it for preserving things, maybe not us, but we use it for taste. And so oftentimes we preach this uh, concept as salt, meaning you, meaning Christians, us, as preserving the world or flavoring the world. But that's not the context of Luke. That's not what Jesus means in Luke, and therefore I don't think necessarily what Jesus means in Matthew, because these are parallel passages. First thing we need to realize, and I preached this when I went through it, is that salt is salt not by doing anything, but simply by being salt. You see that, right? He says, you are salt of the earth. Not when you do this, but you are, are salt. You are salt by being. Not by anything you necessarily do. Which then leads us to what the uses were for. Well, in Israelite times, they would get their salt from the Dead Sea. This is the shore of the Dead Sea. And in the Dead Sea, when you begin to look at the chemical compositions of the salt in the Dead Sea, you begin to find a few things that are interesting. 53% magnesium chloride, 37% potassium chloride, and 8% sodium chloride. Now, the 8% is what we use on the table. As if you remember your middle school chemistry, hopefully... That's the salt we use for the table. Does anyone here know what you use magnesium chloride and potassium chloride for? Who are the gardeners in this group? Don't be shy. <laughs> what do you know about fertilizer? What goes into it? Well, potassium chloride as well as magnesium chloride are some of the main ingredients in potash or 
fertilizer. And it's been used about the centuries to help soil become fertile and to help good things grow. This is the better context of what Jesus is saying. And especially in the context of where they get their salt from, only a little bit is table salt. And especially in the fact that it's been helped by translators using the word taste instead of saltiness. What if Jesus is actually saying, now bear with me for a minute and don't take it too personally, you Christians are the fertilizer of the earth. I was going to say manure, but I figured that would induce some, some laughs. So I'll say it. Next time you can go home and say, we're going to be the manure of the earth today. Well, that doesn't translate so well. Maybe a good sermon. Maybe not. But what if you're the fertilizer? What if you're not so much making things taste good or preserving what's ever there? In fact, isn't that God's job? But what if you're the fertilizer of the earth in order to make good things grow? In fact, we know this to a large extent is that whenever you have a collection of people in one spot of same like mind and same mission, don't certain things start to happen? Like, for instance, having a church. For instance, having a ministry, having a service. If this is true, though, here's the thing about fertilizer. Here's the thing about potash. Fertilizer only works in direct contact with the soil. Do you realize that possibly... Well... I'll speak for me. I think this is a much better context. It means I've been preaching a little bit wrong. It also means that we are not the salt of the earth by being locked in here, in this room. Now, we're helping each other. But we're not being the salt of the earth right now. We're doing other things. The salt of the earth, in order to help good things grow has to be in direct contact with the soil. has to be in direct contact with those who need good things to grow in them. Let's speak plainly for a minute. You and I have to be out in direct contact with the world in order to be the salt of the earth. Not by doing anything, but by being salt. Being the people of God that God has made us to be. Now there's another element to this. Yes, these are toilets. Can you see it now? These are actually toilets from Corinth. These are public toilets, as you can tell. There's one, there's two, there's one, two, three. This was, in ancient times, how the elite and the well uh, financially blessed would be able to relieve themselves. Actually have a nice area to go and a nice stone seat to sit on. It was nice then and have a place where they didn't have to deal with it themselves. Here, as well as what was more common, this is a rough approximation of a a fairly average Israel at home. You see this guy in the corner here? What's he doing? He's shoveling the dung heap. Not just from the animals, but in ancient times, especially in night, whenever it was less convenient, you would go out probably to where all the animals went in the yard, where everything went, and you would go, you would relieve yourself, and what would be next to it, what everyone knew helped the dung heap, was a box of Dead Sea salt. What you would do is you would take a handful of salt and throw it on maybe a couple of things because you knew that salt would actually help bad things not to grow. They didn't know the, the verbiage, they didn't know the science, but bacteria and fermenting stuff They knew that salt helped 
stop that to where they could have, dare I say, a useful pile of dung, a useful dung heap that would turn into fertilizer, that would not make them sick, that would actually be useful and not be a detriment. So we have the two things here. Jesus is saying it's not fit for the soil, it's not meant to make them grow, nor is it fit for the dung heap to help things not to grow. You see that? It's thrown away. So the metaphor here is that Christians are either fertilizer in the world to help good things grow, or fertilizer in the world to help bad things not grow. And he's talking about Christians in our society. Now here's the thing, once again. Salt, let's just rephrase it. Salt is no good unless it's in direct contact with the soil, either to grow good things or to prevent bad things from growing. That's the metaphor of salt Jesus uses. A little bit different than before. But I think a whole lot more applicable. There's one more element from this, though. Let's look at it again. Salt is good, but salt has lost its taste, its savor, its saltiness. How shall its saltiness be restored? There are various debates about this, and some people will say, well, Dead Sea Salt could actually lose its saltiness. Some people say it couldn't. There is one thing, though, that is indisputable. How does salt lose its saltiness? This is salt and sand. In fact, back in ancient times, merchants who were trying to get away with trying to make a bigger buck on less product being sold would sometimes mix the salt that they would sell with sand. And that would keep the weight up. This goes into Micah about uh, bad scales. This is actually quite a pretty good thread throughout the Bible. But, but what happened is that people would get home and they would have this mixed contaminated salt that they would throw in the soil and it would do nothing because the salt has lost its effectiveness based on its contamination. Or they would throw it on the, fertilizer, on the dung heap and stuff would grow. And they realized they got a bad batch of salt. What's the point? Salt loses its saltiness when it's contaminated with so much that the effect of the salt cannot be felt. Hopefully you're aware of the application here. How does salt lose its saltiness? Becoming like things that are not salt. Let's drop the metaphor for a minute. How do Christians lose our influence? By being like the world. By not living in a way that the eunuch sees us and goes, can I have some of that? Can I be a part of that too? By not living in a way which produces people's persecution. Did you notice that from the Beatitudes? Blessed are you when people persecute you. Because Jesus knew that to live this way will incur persecution. By not living in a way which is noticeable. By not living in a way which is counterculture. By not living in a way which makes the good things of God grow or prevents the, good, the bad things of the world from not growing. So the question is, how do you make sure that you do not become contaminated? Well, become full circle. Be close to God and be close to each other. Like someone designed it. Brothers and sisters, I have a simple, if maybe slightly long-winded message for you this morning, that love is presence. And everything that means. Love is presence, first and foremost, with God. We must be present. And I don't mean just every now and then. I don't just mean on Sundays. I don't just mean coming to every We must be present with God as much as we can because God is present with us in His life in every part of our life and wants every part of our life to reflect Him. I've said before, that's the whole point of the whole Levitical Code, to remind Israel, nothing in your life is yours. Everything is mine. At least it should be. Out of that presence, we need to be beside and present with one another for many, many reasons. 
the one another passages to help each other become not like the world, to help each other become more like God. Go back to last week, the active love. You need to pursue each other, seek each other, respond to each other, and know where we're loving each other towards. The point of the church is not just to be here and regulate ourselves and not being like the world. The point of the church is for someone to actively love you into being like Jesus by presence. And finally, out of this, we need to go and contact the world. If you're the only Christian coworker in your area, in your work, praise God, because you're in direct contact with the soil. Pray that you can withstand it. Don't do anything that will make you lose it, but don't leave. Pray for help. And have your church help you. Presence. The question I want to leave you with If we were to truly take the radical steps like Jesus did to be present with us, Philippians 2, that he humbled himself, gave up his glory, and became human to die a death on the cross. If that's the example of presence we have, what could the church be if we even took half of that and made it our way of life? To be present fully. Well, Cardinals are winning. It doesn't matter. Be present because love of each other, love of the world, love of God is presence.